Well, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Believe it or not, we're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 11 of the text today. Let's turn there if you would and let's hear the inerrant and inspired and fallible word of God this morning. Under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the Apostle Paul writes these words. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I still, uh, was still unknown uh, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today is Father's Day. And we want to honor our dads. And we want to uh, show our love and our appreciation for all that they have taught. For the ways that they have discipled us. The ways that they have, have carried us along. Father, this morning as we read this text from Paul's letter to the Galatians, we hear Paul defending his ministry and his gospel and his apostleship, and we hear Paul saying that he has turned away from what his father taught him to learn from his heavenly father. I pray this morning that uh, the men of this congregation would follow their heavenly Father's teaching. Oh, Father, not that we would neglect anything that our dads have taught us, that our fathers have taught us. Not that we would not respect and love and appreciate those things, but more than anything else, that we would be careful to align what we hear and what we follow and what we teach and what we pass on to our children to be sure that it's aligned with our heavenly Father's word and will. Lord, I ask you to remove the scales from our eyes, to remove the, the, the things that, 
distract us and that would keep us from seeing Jesus Christ, that you would help us to understand what it means to have a testimony of the grace of Christ at work in our lives. Oh, I pray that you would be with us this morning and that we would go from here encouraged and strengthened to live and to to please you with all of our energies. For Jesus' sake, amen. So I'll have to tell you that the months of May and June this year, for me personally, have been amazingly wonderful months uh, as a pastor here. Uh, we have received a, a number of new members the, the last couple of months, and, and I've gotten to hear the testimonies of our new members, and, and which we always do as we receive new members. But I've gotten to hear the testimonies of, of the way God's grace has changed hearts and lives. And it is so encouraging to my soul uh, to think about that. I was thinking about your stories this week as I was reading Paul's letter and, and as I was praying and thinking about what, um, how to approach the text for us this morning. And um, I was thinking about how your stories and how my story fit in with God's bigger story, the bigger story that God is writing in our world, the story about himself, the story about his honor and his praise. And I'm amazed I mean, I really am. I, I'm, I'm astounded. God is doing a wonderful thing, and we get to be a part of it. And that is pretty cool. I love that fact. You know, when I came to faith in Christ, I had a dramatic conversion. There was a major about-face that took place in, in my heart and in my life on that day. But I know that my dramatic conversion is what it, not what everybody has. It's not the same thing for everyone. In fact, some of the testimonies that I I love to hear, I mean, it's great to hear how God has taken uh, someone with a heart like mine and has turned that heart around. But you know the testimonies that I really like to hear are the testimonies of those who have put their faith in Christ, but they never, they grew up in a Christian home. They can never look back to a day when they didn't know the Lord Jesus. Now, they can look back at a time perhaps when, when they uh, made a conscious, deliberate decision that they would follow Christ, but they grew up always knowing about Christ. I love those testimonies where you've been taught from the earliest days and, and you trusted Jesus early in your life. I love hearing those testimonies because it reminds me that God is faithful that he's faithful to his covenant promises, that he keeps his promises, that his word is always trustworthy and true. You know, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, it's it's right up there with um, uh, Psalm 33 that uh, I frequently uh, like to quote, for Psalm 34, for the uh, call to worship. Uh, It's right up there with... um, Uh, Some of the other favorite passages out of the scriptures is Deuteronomy chapter 6, the fourth verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart And God goes on, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, let me just ask you a question about that seventh verse. If you're going to talk about those when you walk by the way... When you lie down, when you rise, if you're going to talk about the statutes, the Word of God, the things that God has taught us, that's pretty much 24-7. You are transferring to your children 24-7 what you believe about God. Hear, O Israel, do this when you lie down, when you rise, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. It's like you're going to tattoo the gospel on your hand and on your forehead. So it's always there. Now that's a figurative way of speaking about the Word of God being a part of who we are. And the Lord, your, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land of, uh, oh, wait, I left out one of the key verses, 9. The doorpost command. This is where, in fact, this is called the doorpost command. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Word of God ought to be something that you can't get around, that you can't walk past without seeing. And that we as parents, particularly we as dads, need to Live that word out before our children and before our families in such a wonderful way. We shall teach them diligently. I'm going to confess to you as a father that I look back over the years that my children were in their home, and I'm going to say that I taught our children, but I don't know if I was diligent or not. How would you evaluate yourself? That verse always brings me up short. I taught And I tried to carry out the doorpost command to to teach whenever, wherever, however, all the time. But I wonder if I was diligent, as diligent as I should have been. And I know that we could all say we need to increase that. But listen to the rest of the passage out of Deuteronomy 6. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt into out of the house of slavery? It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Our legacy to our children is not in the things that we give them. It's not in the house. It's not in the contentment in life in this world. It is in the Lord. Dads, remember that. Keep that as your value. So I started studying Galatians 11. I started thinking about our stories, how the gospel fits into our stories. I started thinking about how I personally try to live out the gospel in our household as a father. And thinking about my own shortcomings and that kind of thing. And one of the other thoughts that I had as I was reading Galatians 1 is that reading Galatians 1 is kind of like listening to your wife talk on the cell phone you can hear half the conversation and you can infer what's going on in the background but you don't really hear the whole conversation 
So you can understand that, you know, you can, you can get the idea, but you're only hearing half the conversation. You don't directly catch the other voice. Paul has shared with us his autobiography with the churches in Galatia here in particular, and he's defending his apostleship. So on the other end of the line, what was going on, the churches were beginning to question Paul's right to claim to be an apostle, Paul's right to declare to them the gospel of grace, the way that he was doing it. And so he shares his autobiography, defending his character, because Paul understands that the message that he preaches is closely tied to the kind of messenger that he is. The thing that Paul says is that that his message is tied to the kind of messenger that he is. It's the Deuteronomy 6 thing kind of fleshed out in Paul's life. If the messenger can't be trusted, then you can't trust the message. And so he defends himself to defend the gospel. But how does he do that? He does it with his autobiography. He says, look at me, look at my life, look at what God has done in me, and he tells his own story, not to vindicate himself, but to vindicate his message, to vindicate his gospel. He begins his defense of himself with verse 11. He says, for I would have you know, if someone says, I would have you know, that's usually not the... That's not the gentlest way to start something, right? I would have you know, and then he goes on, what does he say? That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. You need to get this, Paul says. It's not my gospel. It's not man's gospel. This is God's gospel. It's like Paul is saying, despite what you think or what you've been told, the gospel I preach isn't geared for easy consumption by the Gentiles. In fact, it's not even the kind of gospel that a human being would come up with or would invent. My gospel didn't originate in in some creative brainstorming session, uh, nor did I pick it up at the mall. The gospel is not something that, that I saw advertised in an infomercial. It's not something that I read about it in the latest self-help book. The gospel is not something that I bought online. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it uh, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel that changed Paul came by direct revelation to him from Jesus. That ought to hold some weight. Especially when you realize who Paul is, and Paul's going to tell us who he is here uh, as he unfolds the text for us a little bit. Notice that what Paul does here, though, is he doesn't start by by using a string of tightly uh, arranged theological arguments. He doesn't doesn't string together a bunch of Bible text as proof text for his authority as an apostle. He starts with his autobiography. He starts to talk to the Galatians who were questioning his right to teach and to preach what he was teaching with his testimony, his conversion story, his experience of the grace of Jesus changing his life. For you've heard of my former life, verse 13. He says, he argues for the divine origin and nature of the gospel by describing the profound change the gospel has made in his own life. His autobiography, 
His testimony is his best argument. And he puts it forth right here. He knows that a transformed life is the most compelling case that you can make for the truth of the gospel. People want to see that what you believe makes a difference in the way you live. That it changes you. You know, we are our best argument. I was thinking about that, and, and this morning as I was reviewing my sermon notes, I was thinking about how I would deliver this message this morning. God just kind of nudged me, it felt like, and, and he said, you know, maybe you ought to remind New Hope of this. That not only is your testimony, your best argument, your, your conversion story is your best argument to someone else about the truth of a changed life by Christ, the truth of, of your conversion. Your testimony, your changed life is actually one of the greatest assurances that God gives you that he has worked in your heart to begin with. Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you ever looked at it from the other side of the coin? The very fact that God has made these changes in your life, that you know what those changes are, are evidence of your assurance of faith. It's a good way to be reminded that you are Christ and that Christ is yours. Tuesday we were talking in the office, Melinda and I, and uh, we were talking about the influx of, of uh, Islamic teaching and, and of uh, Muslim culture and communities that are growing all over the United States and um, how sometimes Christians are afraid to reach out to um, Islam with the gospel, how we are sometimes fearful and withdraw from Muslim people. Um, some because of a harbored hatred uh, for 9-11 and for the other you know, atrocities that they've committed. Um, I think Galatians 1 has implications for the way that we take the gospel, the good news, uh, the certainty that we can have eternal life and hope and security um, because of the change that trusting Christ alone for our salvation has made. I think it's a great testimony to take to those who are in Islam. Because those people are enslaved to the law of Muhammad, to the law of Islam, to the Koran, and to its false teaching. They ought to see what living in grace means in your life day to day. Our changed lives are our best apologetic for Christianity. And don't, we don't need to be ashamed of those. We need to rest in God's sovereign work in us, knowing that if he could change you, he could change somebody else. Well, what's the backstory of Paul's gospel? So who was Paul? You know, you know the story of who Paul was, don't you? I mean, surely you do. He was a Pharisee, okay? Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were, were one of the three main religious parties in Judaism in, in Paul's day and Jesus' day. There were actually three groups of Jew, Jewish leadership, if you will. There were the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, okay? So 
Uh, who, who were they? Well, the, the, uh, the Pharisees were, were the group that Paul is from. The Sadducees were the people who were the, the leadership in Israel who were theologically liberal. Um, they, they belonged to the aristocracy. Uh, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the res- resurrection, uh, so they were sad, you see. And you know that old... <clears throat> but not only that, they were in bed with the Romans, Okay. They were, they were tied to the Roman government, and they had influence there. We don't talk very much about the Essenes because we don't have many references to the Essenes in the, in the Scriptures. But, but who are the Essenes? You know who the Essenes were? They were, they were kind of like, they, they were kind of like the monks in some ways, okay? Uh, the Essenes were, they, they had declared a pox on, on the Pharisees and on the Sadducees. They were like, they were having none of that. They, they, they said, a plague on both of your houses, you know. Um, they, they retreated to the desert to wait for God and to, to perfect their holiness. Now, we are indebted to the Essenes. The Qumran scrolls, all the, all the text and all that, they preserved those. And in God and his providence even used the Essenes so that we would have reliable scriptures that we can examine and, and see that they are close to the original, as close to the originals as we can get. But they were, they withdrew from culture. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the conservatives, okay? They were conservative students of the law and of Israel's history. We'd probably like them, okay? We'd probably, we'd probably jive with them pretty well. Uh, they were highly visible. They were vocal. Sometimes they were violent. Zeal was their watchword. In fact, if you were going to be stoned to death, it was a Pharisee who was going to pick up the first rock. Okay? That's who they were. They, they were keepers of, of the... They were Judaism's um, uh, Puritans. They, they, they were theologically literate. Uh, they were concerned that the law would be honored. They were methodical in their obedience and their observance to the law. And the flesh is never uglier than when it's dressed up for worship wearing its religious face. Paul had been a strict Pharisee. Paul had been the son of a Pharisee. Paul's zeal was white hot for Judaism and for Pharisaical Judaism. You remember Paul's story. He was born a Roman citizen. Back then he was named Saul. Was changed as he came to Christ a little later on. He was Jewish through and through. He was a Hebrew's Hebrew. He was educated in the University of Tarsus. Uh, he was a multilingual. He was a towering intellect. Um, he knew the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and my hat's off to him for his ability to understand and reconcile and, cons- and, and absorb all the truth that is there. Uh, he was indeed a biblical scholar. He studied under one of Judaism's most uh, uh, famed uh, teachers, Gamaliel. He was an Ivy League religious lawyer, and he saw himself as a defender of the faith. 
Paul used all of his pharisaical Judaism to defend what he believed, and he knew, he felt that God had called him to do that, and he was, on, he was a man on a mission. During one of Paul's crusades against the church, you know what happened to him, don't you? You know Paul's story. The light of the world blinded him, and he spoke to him. I think it would be great devotional reading this week for you to take a few minutes and read Paul's conversion story. It comes in three places uh, in in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. In Acts 22, verses 1 to 21. And then in Acts 26, verse 22 and following. It would be a great exercise to one morning each three days this week, read Paul's conversion story. And just hear how God changed his life. Jesus uh, not only called Saul to account, uh, he called him to be his servant. Um, Paul, who thought he saw so clearly, uh, was led meekly into the city. The blind, uh, the, the blind Saul uh, being led by the hand, waiting in darkness for three days. And on the third day, he became a new man. On the third day, he received a new name and a new mission. Everything changed. He was changed from the inside out. No longer was it the keeping of the external rules of the law. No longer was it being a good Pharisee and, and punching all the, uh, the, the, the uh, check boxes in his uh, list of righteousness. No longer was it something that he had to do. It was something that he was. He was a believer. He was no longer, he was still a Pharisee. He was still Jewish. He was still Roman. He was still a a towering intellect. He was still a man who understood the Old Testament, but his heart had been changed. There was a radical transformation that had taken place in his life, and the rest of his life he spent defending the very gospel that he had sought to destroy. Paul says, my defense for the gospel that I preach to you, churches all over the the region of Galatia, is the very change that God has wrought in my heart. You know who I was, now see who I am, Paul says. He's very clear about his apostolic um, uh, authority here. I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He essentially is repeating himself. If you read the verse in its context, if you, if you read the first chapter, the very, the very opening verse, verse 1, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and the Father Uh, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me. Paul says, I am an apostle because of what Jesus has done. The agitators were trying to torpedo his apostolic authenticity. Um, You can hear the echo of his words, can't you? you? You can hear the conversation on the other end. You can hear the folks who are throwing the darts at Paul's ministry, who are saying, ah, He's not all he's cracked up to be. Oh, the Apostle Paul, who is he? You know, he's nothing but a trainee. You know, 
He's a second generation apostle, maybe if we even give him that. You know, he's he's botched up his teaching. Uh, they said, you know, he's not from the mother church at Jerusalem, um, like we are. He he spent uh, his so-called ministry uh, out in the boondocks. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and no one with any consequence cares to know him. If he were real, if he were genuine, he'd be at the center of things, like we are. He'd be important. The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, Paul says. I didn't botch it up. My story proves it. And so it does. God showed his power through Paul's transformation in an incredible way. Here's a guy who's gone about killing Christians. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was, he was a participant. Here's a guy who was going about putting Christians in chains because they were some offshoot sect. And through the gospel, God breaks in from the outside and he captures Paul and he radically reorients Paul's worldview. When the gospel changes you, God comes in from the outside And he captures your heart, and he radically changes us, doesn't he? It makes a difference. It transforms us. Our worldviews become different. It's a 180-degree revolution of the soul. Um, The sun is suddenly at the center of who we are and what we do. It's not something that we do ourselves. The false teachers that are throwing rocks at Paul here, uh, their message is that, that it's a man's gospel. It caters to self-assertion, the, the flesh, to the old nature. To, to, it prefers self-reliance and, and self-protection. The false gospel wants to dodge the, the wagging fingers and criticism and, and to establish its own righteousness in some way. It's intriguing that one possible derivation, if you look into the, the meaning of the word Pharisee, if you, take, if you take the word Pharisee and break it down, what, uh, what, it, what it can be translated as is one who specifies. Okay, in other words, one who points the finger, one who, who selects. Okay, it's the idea of, of nominating who's in and who's out. It's the old thumbs up, thumbs down. It's the old black ball, okay? Did you ever join a country club and they uh, had uh, the, the meeting of the, the members of the country club and, and they, you know, did the black ball thing? You ever have that? You ever do that? Sorority, fraternities, you know? Did you ever experience that? That's kind of the meaning of the idea of a Pharisee. That's, that's what the word means, okay? False teachers were using the Old Testament law, circumcision, um, uh, dietary requirements, Sabbath observance, as a basis for in or out, for specifying. Oh, he keeps the law well. He's one of us. He's a good guy. Uh, you know, this guy didn't have his children circumcised boys so he can't he obviously is not a good jew he's not one of us they wanted paul's gentile converts to become observant jews is what was going on that was the conversation 
That was the issue. And they declared that the only way for these Christians, these people who were coming to faith in Christ in, in the region of Galatia, in the churches all over the region of Galatia, was that they would become more Jewish in their practice. It's that they would be under the law. The gospel that Paul was preaching came under fire uh, from the very beginning because it wasn't Jewish enough. It wasn't law-keeping enough. It wasn't doing the right things enough. Let's be honest. In our day and time, as a church body, we haven't had somebody enter New Hope and demand that the men here be circumcised and demand that uh, we only eat kosher food. You know, we, we haven't had that kind of experience here. Although we don't dance to that tune, there's no shortage of people who are specifying what dance steps are acceptable for the Christian today, though, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Christianity has its own set of rules and, and regulations. I mean, maybe one of them is, thou shalt only listen to Z88. Thou shalt not dance. Thou shalt not drink. Thou shalt not smoke. Thou, thou shalt not chew. Thou shalt not go out with girls that do. You know, let's, let's, just, let's just be honest. We have our own set of regulations. Now, I'm being silly, but it's true, isn't it? Our flesh wants a hill, any hill, that, that, to, to raise our flag on. Self-help books uh, have been around for so long. They sell so well for a reason, because we desperately want to get the steps. Christianity, if you look at the Christian bookstores today, and you look at the titles that are in those Christian books it is amazing how many are 10 steps to a closer devotional life with God. Uh, do these things and you'll be more holy. Do these things and your, your children will uh, be disciples. It is not about a list of steps or, or to-dos. It is about a relationship. It's about a relationship that changes so that your religion is not an external thing, but it's a thing that springs out of your heart that drives the way you think and act and view the world around you. The true gospel opposes the bondage of those kinds of lists. The false salvation that those kinds of to-do lists give us. I mean, let's face it, it, you're not a good Christian if you don't have your quiet time every single day. How many of you failed the test this week? What about it? How many of you listened to something on the classic rock station this week instead of to Christian music all week? Now, maybe you could get along with the classical stations, but wait, 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 wait. There's some, you know, the gospel is God's grand no to all human pride. The gospel says, you don't bring anything to the table, Bubba. There's nothing, there's nothing that you can do to merit my grace. 
Put away your pride, your religion, your self-trust, your uh, self-assertion. Quit thinking you can fix things. You know, here's how we think we can fix things. Oh, well, I know that that was wrong, and so I'm going to do something good to offset the sin. You see what we're doing there? We're trying to live in a transactional relationship with God. I'm going to do something good for God because I did something bad and I want to, you know, or I did something uh, good so now I have a little freedom here instead of living in a relationship that's a a relationship of love that says because God has reached down out of grace and loved me and changed me and converted me and, and made my heart new, I want to please him and do what makes him happy. And I grieve when I grieve him because he loves me so much. That's what the gospel that Paul is saying to the Galatian churches that he teaches. And that is the gospel that changes lives. That is what gives us new testimonies. That is what gives us new worldviews. You have to give up reliance on yourself and, and confess your real poverty and your real powerlessness. Listen, I've been a Christian for 45 years or so. I've been at this a long time, and I'm still learning that lesson. I catch myself trying to earn God's pleasure by the things I do sometimes. And I think to myself, oh, silly boy, what are you thinking? Paul's biography shows he confesses the power of the gospel by confessing his own powerlessness. His, his story proclaims that the gospel doesn't come from men. The, it, Men preach power, not poverty. The gospel is from Christ. God's blessing is yes in Jesus alone. And that yes is simultaneously his no to human religion. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? Law-keeping, attempts at holiness. We want to be holy because we love God, not because we want to check off and get the merit badge. The gospel refutes human ambition. It alone brings glory to God. Paul identifies the foundation of his ministry. He says, look, I was set apart. I was ordained. I was called to be an apostle, just like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called from the womb. The servant of the Lord in Isaiah uh, 47 or 49, uh, Jesus, the Messiah, Paul was set apart for his preaching and teaching and missionary ministry uh, among the Gentiles from his mother's womb. Why? Because God was pleased to do it. It made God happy to call Paul to do that. Oh, sure, Paul was a gifted man, but it's not because of the merit that Paul brings to the table. It made God happy. If, if you look at the text carefully, there's a shift in subject from uh, verses 13 and 14 uh, and to 15 and 16. It's almost dramatic. Look at what he says. I used to persecute. I tried to destroy the church. I was advancing in Judaism. Uh, I was more extremely zealous than my, for my ancestral traditions. And then the subject of verse 15 and 16 becomes God. God set me apart. God called me. He was pleased to reveal his son. Those are the stages of Paul's salvation. He was set apart. 
He was chosen from the womb. He was called in time on the Damascus Road, and Christ was revealed to him, and God had done it all. God had done it all. The point is that Jesus entered Paul's heart. And the words of Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, no less I live. Yet not I, but Christ live in me. Were true in Paul's life. Paul understood what it meant to be transformed, to be changed, to be radically turned inside out, to be turned around by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His knowledge of God went far beyond historical and and theological and factual and a grasp of morality and tradition and ritual and all that. It became spiritual and personal. That's why he gives us the timeline that he gives us here. He wants the Galatians who are on the other end of the phone questioning his authority and his right to preach and teach the gospel. He wants them to understand what God has done and that it's not from himself. He gives a timeline, three years in Arabia, 15, years, or 15 days with Peter and James in Jerusalem, then a decade or more in, in Syria and uh, Cilicia. Um, uh, no other explanation accounts for Paul's life and ministry except that he had come to know the risen Christ. He came to know Jesus. Have you had that moment? Have you had that point in time where the Lord Jesus Christ stops you in your tracks of self-earned righteousness, of trusting your own ability, your own stuff, and said, I'm all you need. Faith in me. You don't bring anything to the table. It could have only been that way in Paul's life. Paul would have never made the gospel up. I mean, think about this for a minute. Think about how ridiculous the accusation is at at Paul from these uh, people who had invaded the Galatian church who were destroying or trying to to whittle down Paul's authority so that they could bring in Judaism, a, a, a shade of Judaism into the churches there. He wouldn't have made that up. He, he would have never made up a, a law that, that the one who was so fanatical for keeping the Mosaic law, for keeping the ancestral traditions, for, for doing everything that the Old Testament demanded, would never make up the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles. That's, that's just not even conceivable. Paul, left to himself, would have not done that. God's change in his life is what caused that to happen. Paul loved the gatherings of the family on the holy days that Israel celebrated. Paul loved the annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Paul loved the rituals of of the rites of passage as, as children became a part of the family of Israel. He was violently opposed to anyone who threatened to undo his culture. But God entered his heart. Couldn't every one of us who believes say something like that too? Really, if you think about it, you know my former manner of life, we might say. A lot of us are able to point to past lives that were diametrically opposed to the gospel when we were self-righteous in some way or another. 
we were like Paul, always criticizing, always condemning, never seeing any fault in ourselves. I'm not as bad as he is. And so we can say to the world and to our friends and to our family, you know how it was. You know what I was like. But now look at what God's done. God's brought a change in me, and, it's, and I'm different now. I, I'm not what I once was. I'm not who I once was. Even those brought up in Christian homes, even those who have a testimony that they, they can't recall the day that, that uh, they trusted Jesus for the first time, they're more like Jesus, actually. They've grown up in a, in a household where they've grown in wisdom and stature like Jesus did in Luke chapter 2. Through the years, they've grown in knowledge and discernment and commitment and holiness. And, and they can look back on, on the past of ignorance and immaturity and foolishness and see how God has preserved them. Out of that, God has, through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, changed their hearts. They too were not once what, or not what they once were. You know, we don't change and just adopt a philosophy. We don't, we don't change and, and just decide that we're going to live a moral life or a different kind of life. We have a radical transformation that takes place. Paul wanted the Galatian church to see the radical nature of his transformation. We can't create a religion that focuses on, uh, on the... We, we would never create a religion that focuses on the problem of sin left to ourselves, would we? <laughs> I don't think so. We would never have come up with the, the, a solution for the problem to sin, being that God would send his son to pay the price for sin either, would we? I, I don't think that's in our, in our categories here. You know, we would never dream of the bloody death of the Son of God. Nor would the primary principle of the salvation that you and I might come up with be that of grace. It surely would have been that of merit. It surely would have been that of, of doing better. I mean, let's face it. Who are the people in our society who we honor today? They're the people who succeed in their careers. They're the people who succeed in, in parenting. They're the people who succeed financially. What is that? Well, they have earned their way. They have created a level of merit. We would have never created a religion that's based on grace. Making, if we create, when we create a religion based on grace, we make it impossible for us to take credit for our salvation, and we wouldn't do that. Nor would we require repentance, would we? Because repentance means what? It means that we acknowledge that we have wronged God and someone else usually. And that we ask for forgiveness from the heart. And that we make a 180 degree turn and begin to live our life in a different direction. We would never create a religion that's based on that kind of lifestyle. Paul's basically saying... To his critics, he's saying, look, that's not what I would have invented. 
We didn't make this up. When people come to you and they are resistant to the gospel, when they're resistant to hearing what Jesus has done in your life, you know their problem is not really with you. It's with Jesus. Their problem is with Jesus. The Galatians' problem was not with Paul. It was with Jesus. This is, I think, among the most comforting and and healing teachings in all the scriptures. Look back over your life. Marvel at God's hand. Do you see how he set you apart? How he called you from the womb before you ever knew it? Do you see what God has done? Do you rejoice that he's called you by grace? Do you humbly admit that Jesus Christ, you know Jesus Christ only because God was pleased to reveal his son to you? God chose you and chose to reveal Jesus to you. You know, it's only the gospel It's nothing else. No psychology, no philosophy, no political ideology, no traditions, no law keeping can can take us from where we are to where we ought to be. It won't happen. If it could, then we'd get the glory and not God. Soli Deo Gloria. Only the glory of God. When you begin to hear the music of the gospel in your heart, When you begin to hear the song, listen to it. Don't quench it. Don't don't shut it off. Don't turn it down. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Savor it. Come back to the gospel over and over and over again. You see what Paul does here? Is he not only defends himself before the detractors that were trying to usurp the work of God in the churches in Galatia, but Paul, when he writes this first chapter of Galatians, reminds himself of the gospel that changed his own life. Rehearse the gospel for yourself. Remind yourself of all that God has done for you. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning to help us to take our stories to see how our stories are part of the bigger story that you are creating that brings glory to your name. Would you use us in any way that you might see fit? Father, would we pour ourselves out like the Apostle Paul? Would we love your church and your world like he did that others may come to trust Jesus and have the assurance of eternal life? Oh, Father, I don't care whether they're Hindu or Muslim or or whether they are just plain old pagan. Help us to share the good news with those around us. Help us to use what you have done in us as our apologetic. And then, Lord, take us to the word. Let us let your word speak richly into the lives of those that you're working Oh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and ask for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.